The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who didst lay the foundation of man's being in wonder and honor, and in greater wonder and honor didst renew the same. Grant that by thy holy incarnation that he who is partaker of our humanity may make us joint heirs of his very Godhead. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost liveth ever one God, world without end. Amen. The last time we talked about <clears throat> man in the beginning, uh, and I want to just say something about the story we heard at the end of the Mass about the miracle of healing. Uh, because I think it sets us up for what I want to talk about today. We are shocked when healing occurs. <clears throat> it's as if it's an abnormality, when in fact it ought to be normal. And that very fact tells us that we have deviated from some condition, some previous condition. Our in beings are, are in a defective state. Uh, and in the church, we call that the fall of man. And actually might be called the fall of creation. So I want to look at the concept of the fall today uh, and, and just sort of discuss what happened to creation that we have come to a point that we think miracles are supernatural uh, or even, even more so, we don't expect them at all. <laughs> or we try to rationalize them. I said, there's no such thing. You know, a lot of medical people tend to get that way and they get, they see so many things that they tend to get too objective. But we can be that way as well, and we shouldn't. This is, miracles are normative. We should expect these things. Um, and so we're, it's, if, it's, if it seems abnormal, it's because we have come to a point where we are in a defective state uh, and we need to come to grips with that. So I want to talk today about the fall of man. And just as a very quick and brief recap, you may remember that last time, what we pointed out was that in the beginning, humanity participated in God and in the immaterial, participated in God. I think my father was trying to grasp that today or talk about that today. <clears throat> and humanity was universal. That is, each human being, each one of us represented all of creation uh, before God and God to all of creation. Uh, we, we don't have that anymore. How many of you come to church thinking about you stand on behalf of all of creation before God or that you represent in your daily lives God to all of creation? We, we don't. We just don't. But, but that's what the first human beings did. That's what Adam did. That's what he experienced. Adam had free will, that his will was unimpeded by passions and by habits and by desires and by the tugs and lures of the passions, as we call them in the church. Adam was dispassionate, that is, he wasn't uh, subject to his passions. We are, and as I've mentioned all the time, just watch TV, go home and turn on the football games and watch the ads. And, and the minute something comes on about food and how often is that, uh, you know, we're thinking about our next meals. Uh, and it's hard to watch a good sports event without eating something. They depend on it. So they even have ads on the scoreboards at the, at the stadiums and, and then adequate concession stands back there to make sure that all of us are holding something that we're eating or, and or drinking. But we, he was, Adam was dispassionate. 
He was rational, that is, he had a knowledge of God and it was objective, an objective knowledge of God, not subjective, something that he made up, but something that he had received and experienced. And it was integrated, it, it penetrated and permeated every aspect of his being and in, in existence. We were watching last night on Wheel of Fortune, you know you're, you're getting up in years when you watch Wheel of Fortune, or better yet, you know you're becoming your parents when you watch Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> that, that's, that's what I always think when I watch it every night, but it is a challenge. In, in any case, last night there was a guy who said he was a minister, but he also had some secular job. And he did something else, and he said, I keep all of those totally, oh, he worked for the government, wasn't that it? And he said, I keep those totally compartmentalized. I thought, well, you don't even get it, buddy. The Christian life is not to be compartmentalized. It's to be integrated, where the experience of God penetrates everything we do and affects everything we do. And that's the way it was for Adam. He experienced humility uh, in ways that we can't imagine. And because we, we experience reality from the viewpoint and the perspective and the advantage of pride, selfish, self-focused pride. If you want a couple of glimpses of what humility is, three glimpses. One, read read about in Father Zacharias' books about the inverted pyramid, and I've mentioned that before. Read the prayer, Bless My Enemies, by St. Nikolai Velimirovich. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to read it. Bless them, O Lord, and bless, bless those who, who persecute me. That's the most powerful thing, and it expresses an attitude of, of humility. And lastly, if you really want a good glimpse, and if you haven't done it, then break out the St. Ambrose prayer book and read the self-examination and look at it honestly. You will feel, you will probably feel beaten down. I know people are afraid to even look at it because they, they, they think that if we look at ourselves and see our defects, that we somehow cannot tolerate it and we won't be able to survive. Wrong. We will be able to survive and we will become true human beings. That's humility. Adam had that, a true human being. He was pure potential. That is, he could take, he could become, he was the image of God. And yet there was an image of God that would constantly grow. So we will grow into this. He grew into this and he could have grown into it more. But as we'll see today, he, he was fooled into going a different route. So there's pure potential, is perfection reaching pure potential? How does perfection even become potential? And yet that's the way Adam was. He was antinomical or time was antinomical. So time was both chronological as we understand it and eternal. How do you have chronology and eternity in the same thing? And that, that's what reality was for Adam. <clears throat> Prayer was easy for Adam. We see him walking and talking with God, just casual conversation. Uh, prayer is one of the most difficult things for us to learn. It is so hard. The great saints will tell you it is hard. They struggled. They did battle. But prayer was easy for Adam. There was no death. You see, the chronology of time for us ends in death. But there was no death for Adam. Wow, what's that like? Well, we call it heaven today, but that's something chronologically in the future, isn't it? So it's not something we can participate in now. He participated in that state now. 
And hence, take all those together, and Adam, in all of humanity, is called the crown of creation. The crown of creation. What does that say about us? And then you look at us and you say, how do I measure up to that? Not very well. So something's wrong. What is it? Do we really want to know? Do we really want to know? Yeah, I think we do down in our heart of hearts. But the fact of the matter is, we're so inundated by and infected by our pride that we really are afraid what we'll find. I remember thinking that I didn't want to know what God expected of me because I might have to change some behaviors. Well, guess what? I've had to change a whole bunch of them. And I'm still struggling with some of them, still trying to change them, and I haven't mastered it yet. Uh, <clears throat> so in any case, the answer to that, what happened is what we call the fall of man. And as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, we might call it the fall of creation because both aspects, the material and the immaterial of creation, were affected by this. Uh, but the key ingredient was man, humanity. Humanity is the focal point. And so in the immaterial realm, when the fall occurs, the angelic hosts are tempted. And the angelic hosts are tempted by pride. And the angelic hosts have a falling out. And some become demonic because they refuse to surrender, yield their wills to God. And then we have the fall of man, which occurs because the demonic spirits tempted humanity. Now, you may say, now, where do you get all this nonsense? Well, this is what Judeo-Christian tradition has taught us. It's woven throughout the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, it mentions a lot of these things, but only alluding to them. And if you don't understand the story I'm telling, you might wonder where they're getting these ideas. And yet they assume everybody knows. And so the fall, of create, the fall of man is called that because humanity is the focal point, but all of creation is affected. Uh, so we sometimes can call it the fall of creation. So let's look very briefly at the fall of the immaterial realm, the angels in the presence of God. Their purpose was to serve God and to serve humanity on this, in this material creation. And the angels had free will. The ability to choose or to, to obey and serve and, and worship God and humanity or not. But they're also angels have that this experience in eternal time, not in chronological time. So for them, it's a different experience. They have one choice. We, we are lucky that we are in chronology, chronological time because we can repent and we have plenty of choices in this life. But they only had one chance. According to tradition, the chief angel refused to serve humanity. Refused. Here's an interesting twist to this. Last time I talked to you, I read to you from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is considered to be the psalm of the angels singing the glory of God at the creation of humanity in the beginning. But in Jewish tradition, there's a storyline that says, that the psalm was the psalm of the fallen angels who refused to obey God. If you just change the tone and the perspective, the psalm changes. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou so exaltest him? You made him lower than the angels. Do you get the picture? <laughs> changes, doesn't it? Just like we change when we are affected by the fall. I'm going to read to you from Peter Kreef's book, 
the snake bite letters. To give you an example, this is one of the best descriptions of this I've ever heard. Remember, this is one, one fallen angel, a demon, talking about, about this. Our father below, you know who that is. And the, the one above is God. I shall never forget the day that the enemy above announced his absurd scheme, not only to create the human vermin, but it wounds me even to say the words, to elevate these beasts above us angelic beings, and worse still, to decree that we should serve them. Our father below rightly pro protested this lunacy before the throne itself as an unconscionable insult to the angelic host. We, creation's firstborn. But when the enemy countered that his love for the little swine was such that he planned to empty himself of his awesome dignity to become, the idea appalls me, one of them, we knew that it was war, a struggle to the finish, war against the enemy's deluded scheme and war against the human race, his wretched darlings. You get the picture of the fall of the immaterial creation. It hurts to even think about it, I think. In any case, <clears throat> the angels, some of the angels agreed with him, not all, and challenged God and exercised their wills against him. If you look at Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, it's a story about a king in Babylon. And yet it was understood in the early church as the fall of the angels. Even Jesus said in relation to this text, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so there was a contention, what is called in Revelation, war in heaven. Not really a war. We know the outcome, what it was going to be. God always wins, and so there's never any real contention against God. We might remember that when we're struggling with God and trying to fight his will. He always wins. And he loves us enough to put up with our contentions, but he always wins. Read the story of Job. So there was war in heaven. And the angels who resisted God were cast out of the heavenly relationship. I can't, hence, again, Jesus' words. <clears throat> they sought to make man become less than what God created as a result of that. They became Satan and the demonic. And this is the fall of the immaterial realm. This took place somewhere in the beginning of all creation. We don't know where because it's outside of the chronological order in a sense. So the fall of man is, a, is listed in, or described in Genesis 3. So remember we had the first two chapters about the creation in the beginning and, and what God creates. And then we have the last two chapters about what God recreates, which we'll look at in a future lesson. And in the middle of the whole of the Bible, is humanity's struggle uh, to respond to this and to find God, in many cases, with, without his coming to humanity. Uh, and it is struggle, which is ironic, because as the concept of covenant becomes more profound and more deeply defined, moving through the Old Testament, the people themselves become farther and further away from understanding what God wants and what God intended in the beginning, until the story of the Incarnation. And then the journey begins back to creation, the end at Revelation. A journey back to what God intended. Yes, who? So, uh, when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning, was he talking about, do you think, I guess, it's all, was he, was he talking about before he was 
incarnated as a human, like beginning of time? Yes, this, yes. Or was it during? No, it's during the beginning because Jesus is God incarnate, and therefore he's outside time. He's he, existed long before. Right. Yes. 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 So the fall of man, the angels or the fallen angels, uh, <clears throat> try to affect negatively humanity's will. Uh, <clears throat> so they attempt them to violate God's plan. And it was done three ways in the story that we see. Call into question what God has said. Did God say? So here's the thing. We come into the church and we hear the church say, this is reality. This is the way it's always been. And we have two choices. We can accept that, that the church, those who have gone before us, know more than we as individuals do. Or we can say, you know, I know better than that. So did God say? Is that really from God? Well, remember what I said a couple of weeks ago. We have to take that leap of faith. God is a great yawning abyss. Jump. That's what faith is. Or help. You got to do what I say. So, and I say, let go. And we say, is anybody else up there? I'm not going to do a lesson, but I have it in my series on this, on that in the creation story of Genesis, there's this very subtle warning against idolatry. And idolatry is creating the image of God according to our own perspectives and what you talked about in the sermon. That's idolatry. He was nice about it. He didn't tell us we were a bunch of idol worshipers. But we are. We want God our way. It doesn't happen like that. But that came from Satan. Didn't, did God say? The second one was to dispute or distort what he says. You will be like God. Well, we will be like God, but not our way, his way. You will be like God. What Satan tries to do is get take the truth, distort it just a little bit, so that Adam is doing it on his own behalf. He is doing it himself. You will be like God on your own power. So we say, my God tells me this, or my God informs me that. My God tells me this is true. My God tells me that is not true. We're living by our self-impressions, our own ideas of reality. You will be like God. And the third one was contradict the consequences. You shall not die. God said, if you do this, you will die. There's a Jewish story I really like, and that it was the, the devil at, said that to Eve about why do you do this? And she said, God said, you shall not touch the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's this, according to the story, Satan shook the tree and some of the fruit fell off and a piece fell off and hit Eve on the shoulder and fell off. And he said, see, it touched you and you didn't die. Therefore, you don't have to believe it. I think that's a really profound story made up, but really profound. Uh, you shall not die. Nothing will happen to us if we don't listen to this. And it's true. But we have to exercise our wills to believe it or not. Here's one of the ironies for us. When we exercise our wills even to reject what the church teaches, we act more like human beings because we're exercising our wills than if we do nothing. Jesus said, I would rather you be cold or hot, but if you were lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. So it's one of the ironies that people who reject God are actually being more human than people who are indifferent, who are happy just to show up once in a while. 
uh, and go through the motions. Let's don't get serious about this stuff. We might get changed. We might discover something. So Eve's response was to appeal to her own logic and sense. And the experience was pleasant. It was very pleasant to her. She, she ate of the fruit and liked it. And what, what does Adam do? He goes along for the ride. She it, all it says is she took, he took of the fruit and ate it. He doesn't argue. He doesn't say, what have you done? He doesn't do anything. He just goes along for the ride. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think there's there's an innate difference between male and female in understanding the spiritual life. An innate difference. And yeah, it's affected by the fall, but there is an innate difference. And you females are lucky in that you understand spiritual things much more easily than we males do. It is really rough for males to understand the spiritual life. And apparently if this story is true, it always has been. It is easy for us to go along for the ride. Really easy and a whole lot harder to try to find out. You y'all understand things that we guys just don't get. You don't I, I'm sorry? No, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that, that's another story in another series of classes. Well, that's true. That's true. And, and, and notice, here's sort of the, here's, here's the irony of it. So the devil goes after the one who's the deepest spiritually, spiritually. Uh, and yet it's called the sin of Adam. I talk about a bad break. <laughs> the sin of Adam. Why not the sin of Eve? And yet here again, another irony of the story is that, uh, in the story of the incarnation, the first thing we have is the second Eve being tempted. And yet she, I mean, she being offered the truth. And so in one sense, it's the first motion, what's going to happen to her. And she says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be unto me according to thy word. What Eve should have said, she says. And so she's called the second Eve in the church. In the Latin tradition, there's, in a, there's a hymn. It's in your hymnal in there. Uh, that's very interesting because it says, in, you know, in Latin, the greeting of the angel Hail is Ave. That's one of them. Ave. And it points out in the hymn, the hymn writer did in the fourth century, that Ave is Eva backwards, reversed. Uh, and the concept of this is God is reversing the fall uh, in, of creation. This is called recapitulation. So Eva is Ave, Ave is, is Eva recapitulated. <clears throat> In any case, all of humanity is affected by this. Adam and Eve were driven out of paradise. That is, they could no longer experience God. Their free will was obstructed by sin and its, and its influence on us. They became self-aware like they never were before. They experienced the sensation of self-indulgence and disobedience. Their entire realm of new behaviors or, or an entire realm of new behaviors opened to us. Uh, what did St. Paul say? I would never have known sin if it's a commandment had not said, don't do it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's like children with fire. For those of you who have children, they, you say, don't touch the fire. So what do they do? Yeah, my father used to say that I would always do whatever he told me not to do. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if that's true, but at least it seemed that way to him. Uh, and so the whole new realm of behaviors is open to us. 
we become a humanity became cognizant of the distinction between good and evil. How would we have known if we hadn't done it? There's a sense of guilt. And the worst part of this is blame shifting. Adam blamed Eve. Adam, what did you do? It was the woman you gave me. So he blamed God and he blamed Eve. You know, people say, how can it, in order to reject church, the church and anything the church says, how can a good God such and such? That's blaming God. Or it's an excuse not to believe. Actually, there are answers to that, but that's another story. So Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the devil. The devil made me do it. The devil didn't make anybody do anything. He just made an offer and a suggestion, and they bit, no pun intended, the fruit. The consequences of the fall was not, this is interesting, the consequences of the fall were not administered until after they blame shifted. Now, I'm telling you that because, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but when we talk about how the church applies this in the church's practice. We all look at Lent as a negative time, but in the church, Lent is a participation in paradise, which includes repentance and fasting, two of the things that were a part of paradise. So that's why we look at it that way. Our whole demeanor needs to change so that that is a positive thing. How many of you think of confession as a negative thing? It is a restoration to paradise. We should be lined up out the door. Yet we don't want to do it. So the consequence of the fall were not administered till after they refused to repent. The overall effect of this for humanity, and, and by the way, universality is the prince. One person represents all of creation, all of creation is represented in one person. Each one of us represents all of creation. And so whatever is said in Adam, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Have you ever wondered why, why in Adam all die? Well, it's because of the principle of universality, which is inherent in all of us. Adam and Eve, and hence all of us, can no longer experience and know God directly or as he wanted it, with the ease with which he created in the beginning. That's why we have a problem. And we guys, it's, if, it was, if it was difficult to understand in creation, in paradise, think of what it's like now. We know, we have a glimpse of it, we understand. You no longer interact with the immaterial. So the things, the supernatural things are difficult now for us to even believe, let alone experience. And so we look at miracles and we think, oh, there's something something wrong there, or we don't get angels the way we want angels, or when we want angels. Time loses its antinomic character, and so we only understand time as chronological rather than chronological and, uh, and uh, eternal. We can't grasp that. We can't even grasp it. We've lost that completely. We are reduced to speculation about spirituality. And so the, the country is filled, we talked about American Christianity, the country is filled with churches who say they believe in Jesus, but don't teach the faith and don't hold up the faith, but instead offer their own speculation. It's a thing that many churches in America where you make a judgment as to whether, well, each of us makes a judgment as to whether we believe that or what's being taught. And it's really my opinion. But here's the one thing, if, if you don't like what I'm saying, just go back and look, all the ancients believed it. 
So I'm not telling you my opinion, except that I accept it and I believe it's true. So they went before us and they believed this. And we can prove that they believe this because they left their writings. So humanity was reduced to speculation about spirituality. That's also a characteristic of idolatry. There was the loss of the condition of humility for all of us. Forced to turn to the material nature, the passions to know what it means to be alive. So what excites us? Getting what we want. Things of the passions. Eating the food they recommend on, on TV and the ads. Watching football all day long. Yeah, that's one of my passions, I'm sorry, but pro football, I don't like college football. Uh, in any case, we have these passions. These are the things. Some of us live for these things. We live for these things and we become depressed when we can't get them. There are people who get depressed when the football season ends, you know, or, or they go from one sport to another because they live for sports. And, and there are all kinds of things out there that people live for. Notice the seasons. We were talking about this in our neighborhood. Do you know we have people in our neighborhood who have Halloween decorations up? And we have people putting up Christmas decorations. I, I, I once said that there's going to come a time when Christmas decorations are start going, going to start going up in July. Maybe all year long. Uh, because people live for that. We had a family next to us when we lived in McKinney. Uh, and they, they lived for the seasons. That was what their life was all about. Uh, life is more than seasonal decorations. If that's all we have to live for, boy, we should be depressed. Really depressed. So existence is measured by sensual pleasure. There's a loss of the sense of universality. I, I mentioned this universality, and, and I'm sure you don't know what I'm talking about. Because I never understood it until just a few years ago. And now I love the Kyrie eleison in the Mass. Because when we sing that, each one of us is singing on behalf of all creation. That changes that hymn. And then we sing the Gloria in Excelsis, which is the angelic hymn, or at least the first part of it is the angelic hymn at the Nativity. And so we're representing first in one piece the created order, all of humanity, the material order. And in the next piece, we're representing the immaterial order, which is the way it's supposed to be. And suddenly we are doing what we were supposed to do. Wow. Awesome. Just awesome. You can't get that anywhere else. Go try and find it. You can't. There's an, yes. Okay. You were talking about Yeah, what, what I said was Adam, in his original state, was not prideful, but he had the potential to go there, free will. And did. And did. So at that moment, yeah, sinful pride took over. That action was sinful pride. It's, it would be a whole description of that, which I don't want to go there, but, you know, people often have a struggle with this because we've been taught that pride can be a good thing. And so when the church we're talking about, we're talking about the bad forms of pride. If I take pride in my work, pride as a priest that I want to do my job correctly, that's not bad. Uh, 
but you know, if I take pride in the fact that I absolutely have to be uh, slapped on the back and told what a good boy I am, you know, that's that's another story. What so, time is this hand on desk for this chair? But the word confession, pride is at the top. Yeah. Because it's the the pride is the leader of all of it. Well, it's the, the source of all the sins. Yes. The source of all sins is pride. Putting self in the place of God as the as the purpose and order of one's life. I think that's how it defines it. That's what Adam did. Me first. Yeah. Yeah. So there was an overall there's an overall failure to serve as the crown of creation. Notice in our society how people are beginning to talk as if we're just one more part of the animal creation no different than the dogs and the cats. I saw something yesterday in some news source and I couldn't even believe it. Now I can't even remember what it is. I wish I could, could because it had something to do with uh, <coughs> name changes for a sport, name change for a sports team. Uh, and it said that it, the what? No, no. <laughs> there was some take yeah it was something where where oh it was somebody peta 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 yes peta sent a message to the authorities in major league baseball saying that the word bullpen you know what that is in baseball should be changed because number one, it denigrates those humans who do their who start their seat their days their baseball days in the bullpen, and number two, it is an offense to our bovine companions. So, what what, what my po my point here is not the ridiculousness of the request, but 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 the fact that we. We are starting to equate animals and humans on the same level, uh, and and there's a difference there. And it's not that we are to be, as we've seen, it's not that to suggest then that we are to suppress animals and treat them with contempt and kill them off and use them for our own benefit. That's just as wrong as anything else. Uh, but we are the crown of creation. Animals are not. That's just the way it is. We are the crown of creation. So we have to live up to that expectation. And we are different from the animals. And they know it. The animals know it. We're the only ones we're fooling. <laughs> this is passed on to everyone. Everyone experiences, has experienced this fall from the original state. Now, Having said that, there are some in Reformation, some even in pre-Reformation theology, but pr primarily post-Reformation, and there used to be a time in this country where nearly every Christian body taught this, and I don't see it much anymore, but there was a belief that when humanity fell, humanity fell so completely that the only terms that could describe it were total depravity. And churches taught total depravity. And the problem with that is this, from an Orthodox perspective, is that if, that's, if we're totally depraved, then how come we still believe that there can be a God, that religion is somehow beneficial, 
that altruism is a good thing. Who said altruism is a good thing? You notice at Christmas time, everybody gets in an altruistic mood. Let's give to the poor and the needy and presents and all kinds of things. And that's fine. That's good. We get in a mood and then after Christmas is over, everybody forgets. But who said that was good? Uh, who? What? Rockefeller. Rockefeller. Okay. I, 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 one of the questions I like to pose when I see this kind of stuff is somebody says, you can, you can do this and you can't do that. I want, I, I want to ask the person, what's your value standard by which you make this judgment? What is it? See, ours is the faith that once for all delivered to the saints. And it tells us to do these things. But there is a, there is a, there is a residue of the good left. Prayer, worship of God. Where do these things come from in humanity? What about obeying commandments? Even the world thinks we should be good, even though they misunderstand what it means. They think we should obey commandments and we should be good. Why is that? Because the, the, the fall is not absolute and total. It doesn't involve it destroy everything. There's a residue of the good in us. And hence, we believe in orthodoxy. God so loved the world. In the doctrine of total depravity, God despises the world. A good way to, to judge it is go online and read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's the way God should be if there's total depravity. But there isn't. And we don't buy that in orthodoxy. There's a residue of the good. So there is a lot of good left. So we are, we are, in one sense, someone wrote, wrote a book one time that came out when I was in seminary, right before I was in seminary, I'm okay, you're okay. Somebody else wrote a book right after that said, I'm okay, you're okay, but that's not okay. <laughs> or I think it was the opposite of that. Anyway, there were, there were several books came out. People were playing on that concept. So in any case, this condition, this change is called original sin. Sometimes in orthodoxy, we call it ancestral sin. So if you hear that, you understand they mean the same thing. Uh, but because we don't believe in total depravity, then we really have somewhat of a different perspective on original sin from the rest of the world. And you need to be aware of that. Uh, this is the condition from which we view what God has created and the notion of God. And so remember when I said in the very early on, repentance means to turn around, to change the posture, to have a change of mind, to alter the way one thinks and perceives reality. And Jesus' first words in the Gospels are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So his words, the words of God incarnate. Uh, and if we believe what the church teaches, then we believe he is God incarnate, and therefore his words are words from God then our first thing to do is to turn around and begin to see the way reality was in the beginning and to understand what reality was in the beginning. So we have to begin from a different perspective. And the fall tells us this. Right at the beginning of the Bible, it says we are disoriented and we need to turn around so that we can see. And God wants us to see. Now, the next time I'm up, so Father Mark will do something, just a little bit of an adjustment to this. We'll talk at reun about reunited with God, the incarnation. Now, questions? Yes, sir. What is your 
Well, they, they, it says that they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. Uh, and that could mean exposed in a lot of different levels, maybe all of the above, without me specifying that. Um, and when we fall short of what God wants, we feel ashamed. Uh, if we go to confession, we feel ashamed. Many of us don't go because we're afraid of feeling ashamed. It's very interesting. Father Zacharias and, and St. Sophroni say that shame is the key to healing of the, in the confessional. And that shame is a good thing, but we have come to treat it as something bad, something negative. And so shame tells us when we're wrong and enables us to get back on the right track. So <clears throat> that's sort of the, 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 the reception of the concept of shame in the church has as colored the way we see that, I'm sure, but that they saw themselves as they really were, what they had done, and they were ashamed. And they tried to hide it. <laughs> so, yes, sir. Would that be the first step toward repentance? Shame? Um, no, because sometimes we repent, we recognize objectively, we don't feel any shame, we just recognize we did wrong. Some of us just recognize we did wrong. Uh, and then we start thinking about it, and then we really start feeling ashamed that we messed up. I think that there's, you know, you put them together and they're a package whole, and it's hard to say which one comes first or what, because different circumstances will lead to different things. Yes. And Father Clemay, don't ever forget, there is that shame that there's a holy shame of the, the, when God reveals, like he's talking about, we see ourselves clearly. Woe is me, like Isaiah said, right? But don't ever forget to guard against that second deception that Adam and Eve had fallen to in that God came calling after them. We don't know. The church does not know what might have happened had they heeded the call of God. Yeah. But that second shame was the second deceit of, of Satan as well. You see what you did? You know you can't go before God. <laughs> Therein lie the fall. See, so differentiate between that holy, godly sorrow shame and the shame that is indeed the second deceit of Satan, where we don't bring ourselves to go to God and find healing. Is that why, fathers, that they said that? Oh, sorry, I don't think. Is, um, is that why they did not confess? Did they start doing the blaming other? Yeah. Because of that, I guess that second shame, that second part of the shame, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we've got to have somebody to blame when we don't want to face up to the shame of what we did. So, and we do that. We all know that. We all do that through all aspects of our lives. We're constantly trying to, you know, this would be, I'd be a better Christian if my, if my wife weren't holding me back or my children weren't holding me back or, you know, or, or you women, if your husbands weren't holding you back, you know, it just, it can be an excuse. Uh, and people get in like in a marital relationship because it's such a struggle sometimes where the, either one of the couple uh, gets a mind, in a mindset that I could be better at this if he or she would just understand, get on board. Father Zacharias points out, or a story from St. Sophroni points out that when a woman came and said, I'm having problems with my husband, he said, 
he said, how much are you responsible and how much is he responsible? And she said, I'm 5% responsible. He's 95% responsible. And St. Sophroni said, then you take care of the 5% and let God handle the 95%. That's the Christian life. Well, now, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> anyway. All right. Thank you.